Welcome to You Must Chill, a weekly podcast on all things scream-free. My name is John Allen Turner. And Hal. I'm Hal Runkel. Hal Edward Runkle. Yes, right I'm here. never going to let you escape the middle name, man. You, you know that. Love it. You so how are you today, Hal? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing very, very well. I am a little torn. What, what are you torn about? Torn You're g- between two lovers. Remember that wow. stupid song? That song was Hal bad. Hal Runkle <laughs> breaking into song. That song was bad. <laughs> wow. And the fact that it's still... Feeling like a fool. Yes. See? See, I know. amazing how much horrible music (laughs) that we have in the recesses. That that just banked itself (laughs) in our brains and we'll never be able to get it out. Every time somebody says, torn between, you're going to say, between two lovers. And I'm going to think think about you sitting here in the office. Okay. It's like anybody from our generation, if somebody says, stop. Well, first of all, um, in the name of love? No. Or... Hammer time. There's three. Okay, what's the third one? There's hammer time. Right. And then there's cooperate and listen. Oh. Vanilla ice. Yeah, yeah, vanilla ice. No, it's not cooperate. (laughs) Is it cooperate? I don't know. I don't have... Maybe... That one is not lodged in my brain. Really? That one's not? Yeah, that one is not. You are a blessed man. I purged that from the rolls a long time ago. But you... But, I mean, I think most people would, from our generation, would say uh, hammer time. Yeah, I think so, probably. Yeah. So now what are you what are you torn about? I am torn uh I I am very very blessed to do what I do. I, I consider myself incredibly you sit here blessed. here and recite bad lyrics? Other than this. Okay. Every other aspect of my job, I am very very blessed to do what I do. Okay. So the idea that any the, I mean I think what I talk to my kids about is if you were able to pursue something professionally that is a wonderful marriage of something you are competent at something you are passionate about, and something you can make a living at, mm. then you're one of the fortunate souls in the world. And I am in that sweet spot. See, I tell my kids to look for where their passion meets a great need in the world. Mm-hmm. And that area of overlap, that's kind of your sweet spot. Sure. And that's what you should pursue. I add, and you're good at and it. And you're good at it, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's probably good. Because if their passion is singing, yeah, and, and they're, they're not good at it, exactly. that could be a problem. So you got to add the competency okay. thing. But yeah. so you know what? There's another thing, actually. There's another question I just popped in my head. What's that? Doing it with people uh, that you like. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you don't want to... huge, oh. huge deal. Sure. I mean, and because you and I travel a lot with yeah. this job, and the idea of traveling together and eating... Cruddy food, and, you know, <laughs> eating Waffle House. Yes, three different ten o'clock nights at night. Yeah, in three different hotel rooms. And now, where have you been since the last time we talked? You've been. Where have you been? I have been lots of places. I have been to Austin, which right. one, one of my favorite cities. Yeah, that's I went a great to school place. there, and great food and music. And so I did that, and I was at Fort Hood. In, right, and then I was in Chattanooga. Doing Chattanooga a fan- is a fun place. It is a cool place. I got a lot of friends there. The topography is beautiful with yeah, the mountains and stuff. And we did a fantastic gig. With this organization called First Things First. And first Things First. It is a uh, nonprofit, just family strengthening organization in Chattanooga. And they do I, good work. I've heard great things about them. I will tell you, they're the best. I get to travel, you know, all over the world. They sure. are the best. Really? They are the best. And it's Julie Baumgartner is her name, and it's all right. because of her. I mean, you guys, you and I have talked about before how much everything rises and falls on leadership. Oh, and yeah. she is a fantastic leader and fundraiser and organizer, and it was great. It was a huge event with 400 parents coming out to wow. the school, and it was wonderful, wonderful. And so I did that, and then I went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 
And then, so the reason why I'm torn is, again, I get to do these amazing things, and yet mm-hmm. I'm not with my family. Oh, yeah. See, that's the tension, because I feel that, too. I, I've i been to uh, Kansas City, mm-hmm. and then I drove out to Fort Riley, and then I was out in Seattle, and I went to uh, JBLM, which is a joint... Joint base, Lewis McCord. That's right. Uh, Army and Air Force Base there south of Tacoma. And then yesterday I was down with the good folks at Fort Stewart, which yes. is just this side of Savannah, Georgia. So like you, I've yep. been, uh, I feel like I've been everywhere since the last time we talked. Yeah. But when I'm gone, it means I'm not at home. Right. And Amazing math there. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But as my girls get older, I recognize they need me yeah. in different ways than they needed me when I was, when they were five. Absolutely. You know? But it's no less important. So, so oh, I think th- in some ways it's 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 more important. Um, so, is this what you're torn about? Yeah, I'm torn about because I'm because uh, I'm leaving for Germany tomorrow. Oh yeah, and you're going to be gone for like seven days, right? Eight days. Yeah. Eight days. And, okay. and I don't like the long trips. You know. How long is that flight? Twelve. No, oh. eleven. Okay. 11. So you're flying nonstop. No, no, no. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we should explain this though, because a lot of people out there in podcast land don't know. What we do, like who are we going to talk to right. in all these places? And we, they hear us mention forts right. a lot, and so we, we should explain that. Well, we uh, miraculously have ended up with a contract with the U.S. Army to go around practically every week somewhere to a different installation, Army installation, to help some of the one million Army families that are around the world. How many have we been to so far? Do we have a count? I'm sure John. Yeah, we knows have that been. We've been. It's it's been over 40 different installations that we've been to. We do 40 to 45 visits, installation visits a year, but some of those are repeats right, because right. of some of the big ones. We go to Bragg several times Fort a year, Hood, Hood several, several times, times and yeah. Bliss and things like that. But it is uh, just a remarkable thing helping what we call them. They're our nation's finest families, right? The families that make our lives possible. You know, that yeah, that's they, what I tell them. At the end of yeah. every time I speak, I tell them, you know, our our country would not be as strong as it is, and our world would not be as secure as it is if it weren't for the sacrifices. Exactly. That the and your service and make it and I make it personal. My kids at baseball practice tonight, and that doesn't happen without you. Yeah. You know, and so we take these families for granted, but especially when we see everything that all the wars and deployments, the effect that it has had on them. Mm. Uh, right now, uh, deployment. Three or more deployments, then the expected divorce rate is 85%. Wow. Because you're wow. gone. I mean, you're gone yeah, for sure. three out of six years. I mean, we're talking about being gone. Again, it, that's yeah, why yeah. another When re- you and I are gone, we're gone for 48 hours. Right. We're gone for three days yeah, for or three something. days. These people are gone for... A year. Yeah. So a year and a half sometimes, and it's not like they're going to Iowa. No, they're going to the other side of the planet. The most dangerous place on Earth, too. Yeah. So where it's a high-stress environment. Yeah, I, I mean, this, this is a intense. tremendous amount of stress that our military families are under. And consequently, they see a fair amount of screaming. Absolutely. And that's why the Army's brought us in. And it, we, this is our third... I mean, we've been doing it actually sort of for like six or seven years now. Yeah. and Started it on a small scale. And yeah, then, just piece by piece, you know, each installation. And now it's a big contract with the Army where we're, we're blessed or tasked with this incredible thing. And, you know, at the same time, we're, we're not reaching... We're, it's still a, just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. 
you know, trying to figure out how to get get this information in the hands of more people. But the cool thing is, there's like 30 installations around the world that are actively leading screen-free parenting and screen-free marriage classes, small group classes. So here's what typically happens is. a couple of our colleagues, and you do this some yes. too, and I'll, I, may, I may start doing this too. Well, we'll come I, I, in I don't and do know a... if we're going to let you oh, actually do well, this thank part. You. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have, we have, some, we have standards. We have some standards, somewhere. John. So they come in and, uh, and they do a two-day... Train the trainer. So that's for people who work with families. The social workers, the, the psychologists, the marriage family therapists, the... Um, a lot of these uh, uh, bases are so large they have their own school system. Yeah, exactly. And so all the school counselors yep. and administrators and people and like chaplains that. And chaplains and other... The people who are working already on these posts to support these families, they come and then get trained and certified by us to lead small groups through our materials. And then at the end of that, typically it's at the end, uh, you or I will come... Or, or Kelvin. Or Kelvin yeah, will, will or. come on onto the base and do uh, like an overview for yes. anybody who wants to come. It, it's for the public, right. And it introduces them to the principles of screen-free parenting and screen-free marriage. And next year, we'll start with a teen program yeah. that you're developing, right? On that we've launching. mentioned, uh, yeah, that we've mentioned on the podcast. And uh, and so so the, the general public can come to that. Yes. And, and then we use that to funnel them into these small groups. That are go- ongoing. And it's it's just amazing to hear all the stories. We, we have private Facebook pages. Four military families and these leaders, and they just have all these great testimonies about all the people that are going through the classes and what they say, and it's giving new hope, you know, and that's that's really all we can ask for. I, I have come to believe as a professional that the reason why it's so difficult to be a helping professional is because you have to absolutely be educated and experienced enough to understand how difficult the task is, mm-hmm. that... Families who get stuck in incredible patterns over years aren't going to come to you and get unstuck and create new patterns in a week. Right. It it, it didn't. They didn't get into that pattern in a week. They're right. not going to get out of it in a week. And so I have to learn to do two things at one time: is set my expectations low, and yet keep my hopes very high. Mm. And that's just a good general life principle. I, I think it is. Yeah. It's hard. Because it exposes you. See, if you set your expectations on people, and then they don't meet those expectations... Then you deal with disappointment, then it becomes then jaded it's on cynicism, yes. and yeah, yeah, and you have... Somebody out there has, has failed. failed me. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think about it with my kids. My expectations, I don't want to set them so, so high... That they can never meet them. Maybe they're going to be perfect, and they're going to be wonderful representatives of, of our family, and, but I set my hopes very, very high. Right. So that I'm not, I'm not. And see, that's the thing. Like um, a lot of Eastern philosophy will tell you, will just have no expectations, right? You know, just drop your expectations because that is the root of all bitterness. But then, what people do is, uh, oftentimes, when they drop their expectations, they also lose hope, and they hope that things will change, hope that things will get better, hope that things will improve, hope that what that there will be growth, right? And and so now we're saying this is the tension yeah. that has to be navigated. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a tension that you've got to navigate and manage your expectations and yet keeping your hopes. Absolutely. So it, low expectations, high hopes. Very, very high hopes, which keeps you engaged, right? Because 
I have the experience of working with so many families. Again, I'm incredibly blessed to do what I do. And I've seen so many amazing surprises where a couple absolutely on the brink. And I'm thinking, all right, well, my job is going to be to help them divorce well. And yeah. now they're thriving. Yeah, that's fantastic. As a couple. At the same time. But when they came to you, they didn't have that hope. They, they didn't. I mean, they had a glimmer of that hope. One of the things. And so that, it was kind of fan that little spark into flame. Yeah. That's one of the things, one of, the, one of your jobs. Yes. As as a you don't like to call yourself a therapist though. What do you, no, because I'm not a healer. Anymore. And that's the the root of the word therapy yes. is healing. Yes, and, and so you're not healing them. But uh, what are you doing? I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist by title. That is right, my right, license. Right. But I consider myself more of a relationship coach or like even yeah. a, even a, even a relationship personal trainer. Okay, that's a good way of framing it up for people. I think which also helps remind me I can't do the work for them. Yeah, you can give them the exercises, but in the end it's it's up to them whether they choose to follow through on it. Yeah. And you'll and and your clients then and I, I prefer calling them a clients and not patients. I've never called them patients. Yeah, yeah. So your clients mm-hmm. will get out of it what they put in. Because I don't believe they're sick. I don't call them patients because I don't believe they're sick in need of healing. Okay. I believe they are clients. They are wanting somebody to coach them. So I don't believe people are sick. I think they're stuck. Okay, now that's a huge shift for and and I what's interesting I, I heard somebody talking about this in reference to the new Woody Allen movie which is coming out this Blue week. Blue right? Jasmine. Blue Jasmine which yes. is supposed to be fantastic. I've seen the preview. You know, I'm a huge Woody Allen Me fan too. so I'm very very excited about this. Um one more indication of our whiteness. <laughs> uh one of the things that Woody Allen still holds to is this very sort of Freudian perspective that people choose their mental illness, mm-hmm. you know that that you che- you behave your way into a lot of this stuff, and right. it's not always an organic problem, right? Because we're so quick to push. Well, they must be mentally ill. I heard this uh, recently. You know, this week there was this tragedy that occurred in Oklahoma. Yes, this um, uh, Australian baseball player was visiting his girlfriend, and he was out for a jog, and these three teenage boys um, shot him. Cold blood. In cold blood. Drove up behind him in a car while he was jogging along the side of the shot road. Shot him in the back. Shot him in the back and killed him. Yeah. And uh, and when I heard it, you know, people started reporting on it, and then I heard somebody, I don't know whether it was on CNN or one of the news outlets that I was listening to on the radio, the commentator kept saying, obviously these young men are mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, maybe they are. But it's not obvious. It's it's not a default setting. Well, if you do something like that, you must be organically mentally ill. You may have simply chosen to do something wrong. Well, here's the difficulty with that, is if you're mentally ill, you're still making choices. Right. And it's shaping the choices that you make. So the difficulty is choosing an either-or, that either you chose or you're mentally ill, and so you chose, but you can't be responsible for what you chose. It It doesn't ferret itself out like that. And this is the real difficulty of the entire, my entire industry, my entire profession of the social sciences. We like to think of ourselves as scientists. Healers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That this is this is medicine that you're practicing. I'm, and so I'm like a biological doctor, mm-hmm. and so we've got diagnoses, 
And we've, I think the impulse there, if I can go back a few years, was to sort of destigmatize yes. uh, therapy. So people would, people needed to seek the uh, assistance of a professional therapist, but there was a stigma attached to it because I don't want people to think that I'm loony. Right. And so, and so we gave them a therapeutic model. We said, we'll approach this as if, as if he's a doctor. If you're sick, you go see a doctor. And that's why we called them patients. Right. And this is called, in, our, in, in my perspective, or my profession, it's called the medical model. Yes. Which is, you are sick, I'm a healer, I'm going to work with you to heal you. And you don't feel bad when you, have, when you catch the flu, you don't feel right. like there's some stigma attached to that. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you got a germ, or you're biologically predisposed to this. But the unspoken elephant in the room is that there is... Not now, nor will there ever be a blood test to determine <laughs> if you are depressed. Right. Now, there, there is no virus that is causing depression or bipolar or any ADHD. There, is no, there are no yeah. blood tests to determine these things. And so that is the difficulty of calling ourselves scientists because we do not have hard evidence. So what we have done is we have collected symptoms and grouped them together and if we see enough of these grouping of symptoms together... Then we can say for sure... It is a disorder. Right. And that's how we get your insurance to pay for it. Absolutely. We have to have a clinical diagnosis so the insurance company will pay for you to visit your therapist. And of course, the difficulty with that is the diagnosing, and we do it with in so many ways, but it then determines who you are and sticks with you. So when you go and get your kid diagnosed as uh, an ODD, right. oppositional defiant, defiant disorder, that is going to stick with him and It's or going to her. be in his permanent record. It is. Yeah. Because but beyond a, it being in his permanent record, it's going to lodge itself in his brain, yeah. and he's going to rely on that. A lot of times that's what they end up doing is relying on that. And the I can't do that because I'm ODD. Exactly. And I always... And, I get questions whenever I speak, you know, yeah, when people come sure. up to me, okay, first of all, my kid has ADHD. And my question is always, okay, does your child have ADHD or does ADHD have your child? Right. Because what you just said was, it has him. It owns him. And that's the first mm -hmm. thing I need to tell you about him. So I would say, well, okay, so... So his whole identity is bound up in this diagnosis that somebody handed me, which was... And then we're surprised yeah. when they seem to actually demonstrate more and more of the symptomatology of that once what? they get it. What? This is the phenomenon. Now, I yeah, want to, yeah, it's weird that, that they lean into the diagnosis and actually live out the diagnosis once we've given them the label. And here's the difficulty is, do, am I saying that there is no such thing as ADHD? Of course not. No, I'm not there saying that. There are clinical, organic yes. problems, chemicals dripping in the brain in the wrong ratios. I get all that. But to say that it's purely organic... No. Is wrong. Yes. Because reality, diabetes is not purely organic either. <laughs> that's true. There's a behavioral component to that. Yes. And choices that you make. Yes. Uh, so I get this a lot. You know, my kid has ADHD and he can't learn. Right. He can't concentrate and he can't learn. Really? Because he knows every cheat code there is on, on Minecraft. Right. Right. So how did he learn all that stuff? Yeah. How do, how, why is it he can learn that and he can concentrate and he can sit still with an electronic tablet in, in his lap for hours on end? 
I've worked with a lot of teenagers who their parents bring them in to see me for therapy and they'll say he's totally unorganized and can't be organized. And I'll say, let me see your iPod. <laughs> Let's look at the playlists. And it is amazingly yeah, well organized yeah. by genre. But, yeah. you know, it's it's fascinating that this is this is Southern uh, hip hop, right? And this yeah, is yeah. this and is this West Coast, Coast hip hop. And I've got this them is old school hip hop, and this is, yeah. it, it is amazing when they're passionate about it. And there's there's some folks that are much smarter than you or I that are that are working hard to talk about these. One of the guys, oh gosh, what's his? I totally forgot his name. Um, the myth of uh, he, yeah, he talks. He he's got he's books against homework and books against um, Alfie Cohn. Yes, yeah, Alfie yeah, Cohn. Alfie Cohn. Guy's brilliant. Yeah, the myth of homework and uh, why the carrot and stick approach doesn't work and all that kind of stuff. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's really, really good. And and he's kind of piercing the veil here. There's also a great book out right now that is written by a psychotherapist trying to kind of blow up the whole DSM. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, that I heard him on NPR the, not too long ago. The, the manual that, of all these diagnoses. Yeah, that needs to be examined closely because it's a highly political process. Getting things into the DSM and getting things eliminated from the DSM. And again, it has. That's the the sort of the bible for uh, therapists that they go to to find a clinical diagnosis to write on your chart to get your insurance to pay for right therapy. Right. Now, I will say this, uh, in terms of dealing with ADHD, yes, probably the the author that has dealt with that as even-handedly mm-hmm. as anybody is a guy mm-hmm. named Ed Hallowell. Uh-huh. And Ed is great. And I, I do like him. I have a ton him. of respect yes. for Ed. He's a, a medical doctor up at Harvard Medical School, and um, I, I just think he, he has handled it as even-handedly as anyone and and has yes. written at a at a popular level yes so i really appreciate that now i don't want to get the childhood too far from this. roots of adult happiness this is, his, is well, one that, of his books that, that is one of his books which and i that, i love his stuff yeah and uh now that one doesn't deal with adhd specifically well it talks about it some yeah and i i just love the way he approaches that one in particular because he talks about what you can give your kids now that will help them be the adults you want them to be and they want to and be. And people always ask me and ask you after we speak is, okay, will this scream-free parenting approach work with my ADHD kid? And the answer is always, of course, the question that enters my head is, what do you mean by work? Well, the first principle we always give them is that parenting is not about kids. Parenting is about parents. So it it depends. Yeah, like, what do you mean? Let's what define work. What do you mean work. by success? That yeah. they do as they're told? So I always, but then I always end up saying, so would your child benefit from calmer leadership that has a clearer structure? Well, of course. Of course And would. that's obviously what we preach. And so is that going to magically? But I, then I ask him, okay, is he being medicated? Yes. All right. Are you doing different tools to, uh, for, for like his workstation and getting him more? Yeah. Organ- yes. Are you providing him with the structure that he needs to thrive? So why are you still telling me first off that uh, he has ADHD? Uh, yeah, ADHD is a group of symptoms. It is. That's really what it comes down to. But I I, I don't want to get too far from this. We 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 mentioned this uh, this group of teenagers. Yes. In Oklahoma, and. Um, there's a lot of debate over their responsibility, their culpability in all of this. And, you know, is this a product of the gun culture in America? Or is what, what does this say about society in general? Th- these kids, uh, the first report, and there's some... They were bored. Was it just that they were bored? Right. Right? And um, 
now there's some some reports that have come out that suggest that maybe this was a gang initiation. They were they were trying to be gang members, trying yeah. to become gangsters at some level or something like that. My, you know, we, you and I both read uh, an interesting op-ed piece uh, on CNN's website mm-hmm. um, by L. Z. Granderson, fantastic yeah, writer. It, it yeah. really is a, gr- a great piece, and he brings up the question because you and I frequently tell parents. You're not responsible for your kids. You're responsible to your kids. Well, that is the bedrock of the entire scream-free philosophy. But Granderson brings up this point. You know, where where were the parents? Right. And at what point in time do we say, you know what? They're kids. They don't know any better. Right. They wouldn't know any better unless a, that a parent would have to instill some morals and values in their kids. Where are the parents in this? And if the kids are committing criminal acts because they have been neglected by their parents, then is there some culpability on the part of the parents here? Yes, but it's not culpability for. See... What I, why I preach it so strongly about responsible for versus responsible to is it's the only framework I know how to explain that parents do have a responsibility involved with their kids' behavior, but it is not responsible for their kids' choices in that behavior. You know, one of the things that we've both come to say a lot recently is parents aren't responsible for the choices their kids make, but parents are responsible for the choices their kids have. Yes. The fact that these kids had the option to be out with a weapon. Right. At 2 a.m. in the middle of the night. Yeah, He's 15 yeah, yeah. year old. Yeah, right. this, the, this the kid up in New York, right, was uh, shot by the police. Yes, at four, he was 14 years he, he, old. And, uh, and it happened at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the mother is saying, This is my angel and he's my baby. And she. Why you know, is your angel baby out at 3 o'clock in the morning with a gun? He left at 8 p.m. that night. She had no idea. Well, never mind what, a month before or something? He, he was... Yeah, last year he'd been arrested for uh, attempted murder. Right. That's that's not an angel. No, that's not... Like, a... at some point in time, they, they he's obviously he's not a baby anymore. That's not angelic And he behavior. stopped being an angel at yeah. some point in time, too, you know, when your kid continually gets in trouble. And yet we still have this sort of, I don't know, uh, like we talked about last week with the... Uh, uh, bride thing, yes. you know, you're a bride for one day, you're a baby for a finite period of time. Well, but, but I think we still want to refer to them as babies because we've frozen them in amber in that baby period. With the little stick wanna... figure yeah. bump stickers on the back of our exactly. car. Exactly. Yes, exactly. you're that age in my mind forever, so we got all these photos surrounding our whole house. As with long as I'm living, my baby, baby you'll my be. My baby, my baby, and you can't do that without expecting them to try and wrestle free from that label you've put on them, which can I'm be... I'm not a baby. I'm look, not an angel. I'm a man. I'm a, I can yeah. pull a trigger. Now, see, the thing is... Now, again, this gets back... We've talked... This is one of the recurring themes here is this sort of crisis of masculinity that our society is struggling with. Right. We think pulling the trigger is what makes me a man. Mm-hmm. But being able to not... Being able to want to pull the trigger and somehow or other, keep myself from pulling the trigger, that's what makes you a man. Is the self-restraint and and taking responsibility and culpability for your own behavior. Again, which is why I do not ever say that this these teenagers' parents are responsible for pulling the trigger. They are not. Right. But they are absolutely 
responsible for providing these kids a structure that makes that not an option. Probably my favorite line in the article was, uh, kids will be kids, which is why parents must be parents. Right. Yes. They- we, we, that's, that's because they are kids, because they don't come out with it. Like the factory presets aren't responsible behavior right. and independence. Right. They, they, we've got to get them there. And that's the leadership aspect of parenting, which means paying attention, which means setting forth a structure. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about before how the word instruction is actually introducing structure. Structure. That's what instruction is. Now, how kids behave within that structure is still up to them. And that structure, you know, we, we talk about it in terms of kids needing space. Yeah. Right. They need room to grow and experiment and try new things and fail. But and this room does not need that. to be allowing them out at three p three a.m. There you go. See, so so providing them with that boundary gives them freedom without chaos. Right. It's like I I I, you, I think you and I have had this conversation before. You know, are the Harrises and the Klebolds responsible for Columbine? No. No. But did they fail but in their... where res- were they? Yeah. Did they fail in their responsibilities to their kids? Yes. yes. Uh, allowing your kids to amass a stockpile of an arsenal yeah. while in high school in your garage... And you're completely unaware of it. Yeah. That's... You've given your kids more freedom than their responsibility warrants. That is ultimately the difficulty, or that is the root of all failures in parenting is that we either, we don't get the balance of freedom and responsibility. And that's how we say it in our house. We've said this from the very beginning, that responsible behavior buys you privilege. That's mm-hmm. what, Responsible behavior buys you freedom. So, for example, two of my daughters wanted sleepovers this week. Right. You know, so my question was, how responsible have you been? Right. Because having a sleepover, that's not a right, that's a privilege. Sure. So have you earned that by being responsible? True. True. And and, and that's so with computer Can I access, challenge you a little bit on that? Of course. Yeah. Because in order for them to demonstrate any sort of responsibility, they have to be given some freedom first. Of course. Right? And yeah. so it, so it's not that all freedom is bought by responsibility. It's also I'm going to give you freedoms even before you ask for them, even before you've earned them because I want you to grow into those. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to give you so much freedom that you allow yourself to get hanged by the rope that I've given you. Right. So you know, for example, my kids have homework. Yes. Like like most kids, they have homework. Now, I don't force them to sit and do their homework in front of me. Good. I don't force them to do their homework immediately after school Very like some good. people do. But they have to do their homework. Right. So they have freedom to pick when, when and where they're right. going to do their homework. But their homework has to get done. And so that's part of the the freedom that I've given them. Yeah. I gave them that freedom before they earned it, but before they're going to earn a sleepover... Have you done your homework consistently? Right. Did your homework get done consistently? Same thing with cleaning your room. I don't force them to make their bed every time they wake up. Uh, I don't force them to clean their room every day. But once a week, at some point in time during the week, the room has to get clean. Right. Or at least tidied up, straightened up, sure. dirty clothes taken downstairs to the laundry room, all that kind of stuff. So they have the freedom to pick when and how that happens, but it, it has to happen. 
and that's part of responsible behavior that then buys you additional privileges. And my responsibility to you is to as calmly and as clearly lay out that structure for you so that you know where you stand, you know where your space is, and you know where your space ends. We, the tragedy of parenting is that we either give them too much responsibility without freedom by mm-hmm. telling them what to do all the time. You yeah. don't have freedom to make choices. You just do what I tell you right now because I know better than you. And so you don't. And so maybe if so you so we're do gonna it, schedule everything around here. You're gonna eat when I say yeah. eat. You're gonna sleep when I say sleep. You're gonna clean when I say clean. Do your homework as soon as you get home. All that right. stuff. Even though I wouldn't ask that of myself, I'm going to demand it of you. Yes. So we give them way too much responsibility without freedom, but. But then on the other side... We give them tons of freedom without responsibility, and that yeah, can happen a couple here, of ways. you've gotten terrible grades, but I'm still going to buy you a brand new car when you turn 16. Exactly. Because what I've just done is I've lied to you. Both of those cases are lying to our children about the way the world works. Because the world does not reward irresponsible behavior. No. No. In general, you're going to find exceptions. Of course, somebody's going to inherit money, and someone's going to fall into the lottery or whatever. But those are going to be exceptions to the rule. The way the world generally works is responsible behavior and hard work lead to success. And freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. You cannot divorce one from the other. And that's part of preparing our kids for and, the world. And that's our responsibility to them. So would I say that the parents bear some culpability in these acts? Yes. Would I say that they pulled the trigger? No. No. But they were, you know, and, and what we're trying to do, we're, we're trying to get people to stay both calm and connected. Right. And for, for various reasons, most of it, you know, given whatever our personality is or, or wherever we are in a stage of life, most of us fall to one side or the other. Of that, yeah, I'm laid back, and so I'm I'm calm by being disconnected. Yeah, I can I can stay calm, but I have to get out of here. Or I can stay right here with you, but I cannot keep my cool. So I'm just going to blow up. But that's how I tell you I love you, or that's you know. But I'm right. not leaving. You may want me to leave, but I'm not going to. Most of us go one way or the other. But if you can find the wherewithal to do both, to stay both calm and connected, that's when you really have influence. That's magic. And you know the. Um, we here in Atlanta, we got to see a great example of that this week. There was this yeah. Un- horrible this this tragedy that was just narrowly averted. This is unbelievable. It, it's an was, unbelievable story. This uh elementary school in Decatur, Georgia, mm. where a, a man walks in armed, five hundred rounds of ammunition holding an AK forty seven. Holding an AK forty seven, discharging his weapon all over the place. What he fired six six shots. Six shots. Yes. And thankfully no one was injured. Well he goes in and he takes uh two office workers hostage. Sends one of the office workers out to contact the news station to let them know I'm prepared to die and and Yeah. You know, I want to be known and I uh, so he takes and one of the office workers who is not even a regular office worker. She's so a, she was a part timer. Yes. Yeah. Just happened to be there. Yes. Talk about now. A lot of people would consider that wrong place, wrong time. But as it as the yeah, story unfolds, vantage, this was the perfect place for her. It, she was the perfect person to be in this place. Remarkable. At that time. In fact, you know what? Go online and look up her name because I want to mi- be able to mention her name because she is. The among the greatest examples of scream freeness that has occurred in real life in a long time. It is uh, amazing that she... Antoinette Tough. Antoinette Tough. 
absolute hero. And what's great, CNN's playing the entire 911 call because you hear her talking to the 911 um, uh, person. Person, oh, what a... Kendra McCrary. Yes, thank you. And she's also talking to McCray, sorry, M- McCray, McCray, yeah. talking to the shooter, and we overhear that. And through her amazing, just matter of factness. Yeah, she is so uh, even keeled. Yeah. Never lets her emotions get the better of her. But absolutely connected. Yeah, she is calm and connected. She's the perfect example of somebody who didn't check out of the situation, continued to talk to the man, shared personal her own personal I've been experiences. Through, I've been through struggles because yeah. he's telling her nobody loves me, right? She and, says, I know what that feels uh, like. And then she says, know. I want you to know that I love you. Yeah. How empowering oh my gosh. is that? It's it's, And then she's able to talk him. It's okay. We're not going to hate you. That's not, No one's going to no hate you. No one's going right? to hate we're you. Gonna, and we're going to get you through this. Yeah. You know? You're going to be okay. And as she's being able to talk him out, put, putting the gun down. Emptying I'll, his do you pockets. Want me, do you want me to tell them? Do you want me to tell them you're sorry? Okay. He wants me to go on the intercom and tell everybody in the school that he's sorry. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, there's going to there's gonna be a movie made about this oh, because yeah. it's just Has to be. phenomenal. Yeah, and I, Angela and I, Bassett will play this role yeah. or whatever. Oh, perfect. You know. I want this, tr- this story to be trumpeted out because it is the amazing power. If she can do that and talk this guy, eventually where he takes off his backpack, empties all his pockets, gets on the ground, lays down face down while Puts he waits. Puts his hands behind his back and waits. And she says, I'm going to buzz them in so you'll know when they're yeah. coming. If you if she can do that, then you know what? I can be calm when my kid throws his sippy cup on the ground for the fifth time in a row, or when my daughter is learning to drive. Yeah, or when my daughter is learning to play guitar, which she is right now. But you know, I, I can calm down. I can find I it. I can stay calm. Yes, if this woman can do that with all of that, I mean, think about the responsibility that is on her shoulders it's right there. It is unbelievable. And and we talk about. You know, one of the things that we do, almost the mission of our organization, is kind of spreading the power of calm. Yes. And that sounds so counterintuitive because we think power is almost the opposite of calm. And yet, we have a demonstration here this week that it's always been the most powerful force. And it's get you know it's uh, we're we're right up on the fiftieth uh, anniversary of the uh, March on Washington. Got to talk about it. Another, yeah. I mean, another the, testimony. I know he's to... a, he's a hero of yours. You've got uh, you've got a picture of him. Oh, my my son has a poster of him in his room. Yeah, uh, I've written about him in books. Uh, MLK I, you know, is Martin such... Luther King Jr. is, and one of the things that we forget about Dr. King is while he's doing all this, while the Boy, bus boycott, while the Selma marches, while all these things, even the March on Washington is going on, he's a dad. Yeah. He's a husband and he's a dad at the same time. And what a legacy to leave for your kids. With more kids than you or I have. Too. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Talking about being torn because he's traveling all over the place, but he's also facing death threats wherever he goes and yeah. actually ends up, unfortunately, succumbing to one of those death threats. But it's... Such a remarkable legacy that in the town he was from, we have this wonderful example now, right (laughs) almost on the 50th anniversary of the great dream speech. It's it's, uh, poetic. You can't make this stuff up. Right. And he demonstrates to us the power 
of and he he referred to it as the power of love. Yes, and what anybody also talked openly about nonviolence, nonviolence, right? And as, that as you a, you don't counter hate with hate; you counter hate with love. Well, the, I love the that, way he said it. You cannot you cannot hate hate. Yeah, you can't hate hate away. Because if you're if you're hating it, hate, then hate still is around. It, hate and anger, anger is a self reinforcing yeah. emotion. The more I allow myself to express anger, the angrier I get. Well, like, that's, that's a weird thing. One I, of I, his... I think, well, if I just let this out, I've got to vent, and then I'll get it out of my system. But you you never get it out of your oh, system. Another terrible legacy of my profession is that idea that yeah, you can vent. Therapy or venting You or can whatever. vent yeah. your anger out, and so you just need someone to talk to. But one of MLK's partners in calm, if you will. Uh, that's a great expression, partner in calm. From the 60s, uh, who is still around today writing books, is a, an amazing Vietnamese Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh. Right, and we've he, talked about him. He wrote a book called Anger. and he, Fantastic his, book. And his line is, "You, there is no such thing as releasing anger. There is only rehearsing it. Mm. So he talks about, okay, so you teach a little boy who's angry, you tell him to go upstairs and punch a pillow and get it out of his system. Well, guess what he does when he's 25? And, and because what happens is he punches the pillow, he experiences some relief, but the anger doesn't go anywhere. The anger actually just gets fomented by that. And mm-hmm. so of actually learning, instead of teaching him to address the anger to the person in a calm way that he's actually angry with, mm-hmm. you teach him to punch the pillow. But you know what he learns is, you know what, punching the pillow didn't work, but punching felt good. So yeah, next so time... maybe I'm, that's what I'll do. I'll punch, but not a pillow. Anger is a self-reinforcing emotion. Right. And MLK's brilliance, and he he didn't come up with it. No, he was tapping into Gandhi, who didn't come up with it. Right? He was who was tapping into a legacy, a long legacy, of people who recognized that look, an eye for an eye, and this is Gandhi's line, just leaves the whole world blind. blind. Yeah, and so then you know if we can talk about him not necessarily as a religious figure, but as uh, one of the great philosophers of the history of the world, Jesus comes along and says, "No, we've got to stop the end of vi- the the cycle of violence." And here's how you do it: when your enemy hits you on the one cheek, you turn to him the other. When your enemy walks into a school armed with an AK-47, you do not look for your own gun. Mm-hmm. I mean it. I, I yeah. so want to trumpet this out, and obviously there's going to be people that yeah, disagree and, with me. And, and, but I want—we're not—we, you know—I don't have a dog in this whole gun, you know, fight. I do, um, but there are those who say, "Well, if she was armed, then she could have," and she could have. Okay. You're right. This whole thing would have been over, you know, a lot quicker. But would it have come to a peaceful resolution? I don't know if it would have been over a lot quicker. That maybe could have escalated outside. Because how do people respond when they are attacked? They get defensive. Yeah, she wasn't attacking him, and she and consequently she was free. And this is the amazing thing, because she she didn't reach for her own weapon. She was free to love him. She saw him, and she loved him. It's interesting. It reminds th- me that's, of that has power, though. Like, it's, the, yeah, that, it's that has power. It's ultimately the only power. Mm. Ultimately, it's the only power because it's the only power to not just stop this incident, but curb the incidences altogether. That's that's Bono's point 
about you want to stop the Islamification, and I don't mean by Islam, I mean Islamism. Right. You want to stop that in Africa, then love the people that are poor there now and give them the AIDS drugs, which we have done, thanks mm-hmm. to George W. Bush. Yeah. Who did a remarkable thing, and, and, and that will be his legacy. And I, think, I more hope than anything so. Else. And Bono said, "And paint the red, white, and blue on the pills as they take them, so they have an association." <laughs> so they know this is coming from benevolent gen- gen- generosity, right? Yeah. That's how. And it's interesting. You uh, two has an album called "How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb," mm-hmm. and it came from a conversation that Bono had with the lead singer of Oasis, who said, "Who asked him." So Bono, do you how do you dismantle an atomic bomb? And Bono said, "I don't know." And he said, "With love." That's the only power that has the power to upend everything. That's MLK's voice, and it's led to every great lasting revolution. And when I'm in my right mind, mm-hmm. I see the wisdom of that. Right. But when I'm in my lizard brain over here. Reptile. When I, when I get reptilian, when I get reactive, when I allow anger or fear or hurt or frustration to cloud my judgment, I can't see through all of that, which is the power of calm. Yeah. And so I've got to make it my number one priority. Not, okay, I need to get calm so that I can do other things. No, I just need to get calm. Period. Right. And it's, it has to become my quest to get calm. And I need to see everything that comes at my way, every challenge that I enter into as, oh, this is an opportunity to lift some calm weighting, some weights. Yeah. Right? See, and, and that's, we, we do tend to view calm as a means to an end. It's an ancillary or an addendum or uh, something I, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I know I need to stay calm. But if I and do it that way. Because if I could stay calm, then I could. Then I could be more productive, then I could make more money, then I could make better friends, then I could whatever. But when you meet with people who really have made calm their priority, or love their priority, they'll tell you, and you'll you they won't even have to tell you, you'll see it in them, that calm and love are their own rewards. They are not a means to an end, they are the end. And that goes back to a story about Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. this Buddhist monk. Well, one of my mentors is a, uh, a Christian theology professor who loves to study right. meditation. Right, he studies Eastern right. philosophy, yeah. And his name's Randy Harris, and you and I both know him. The man in black. Yes, but he, a uh, quick story about the guy. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but one time, well, we were, I, I saw him out in the parking lot after class, and... Uh, he said, hey, look at my new truck. Oh, wow, cool. Bought yourself a new truck. Had a huge dent in the door. I mean, it was a brand new truck, but a huge dent in the side door. I'm like, dude, what, what happened? You already got in a wreck? And he said, no, I did that. Yeah? Well, I do that to all my new cars. Whenever I buy a car, the first thing I do is I take a hammer to it. Because he has so much anxiety mm. about the new car that something's going to happen to it. If he takes a hammer to it, does it alleviate the anxiety? He, he, he didn't see it that way, say it that way. He just said, I want to communicate to the car that I own you. <laughs> you don't own me. And so now that there's a ding already in it that I and put that in there. I put it there. I yeah. put it there. And so now, I, yeah, so I'm not nearly as worried about what's going to happen to it, but I'm just, I, I own my stuff. My stuff doesn't own me. Interesting story about the guy. But he has gone to see Thich Nhat Hanh speak, and he's actually met with him. And oh, yeah? his description of him was, 
That man walks peace into the room. That is such a great phrase. I love it. It's a great turn of phrase. But then he spoke to him one-on-one, and he said, I have never, ever experienced someone paying that much attention to me, even though there were thousands of people around us. We really were the only two people. I've never had someone pay that much loving attention directly to me. Isn't that, you know, what we all want? But we get so busy with all the other things that are, you know, demanding our attention. And isn't that some of what the shooter experienced this week? A woman... Paying attention to him. Who paid attention to him and told him, I'm not going to hate you. I love you. We're going to get you through this. It's it's unbelievable. Again, it's unbelievable. That is the amazing power of... Calm, which is why we do this every week. Thanks for listening to You Must Chill, the weekly podcast on all things scream-free. Two guys trying to calm down so we can grow up and get closer to the people who matter most. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you more next week. See ya.